If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah to chapter 15. And our first verse tonight is verse 16, but it's in the middle of a paragraph. So I want to back up to 15 so we know the context. Verse 15 says, O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Jeremiah was a prophet. Was he not universally loved? No, he's universally hated. Even his family wants to put him to death. So it says, in your enduring patience, do not take me away, meaning don't let them kill me. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. I'm willing to bet each and every one of you has suffered rebuke for your faith, haven't you? Yeah. Well, imagine being a prophet telling the nation, y'all are wrong. Hmm. Didn't go over well. But verse 16 says, your words were found and I ate them. That's a common picture in prophecy. Remember in Revelation, the angel handles John the book and he eats the book and takes it in. What it means, what it means when it says I ate them is I took them to heart. Your words are words of warning, calling people to repentance. And if you don't repent, judgment is coming. Disaster is coming. And he believed it. And that's why he's trying so hard to persuade his people to repent while there's yet time. It says, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. How can words of impending judgment bring joy to the heart? Because there's the promise of restoration. Yes. What if the people had repented right there in front of Jeremiah? Then Jerusalem would never have been destroyed. The temple would never have been destroyed. God's promise is that when they do repent, then I'll restore them. Does he just restore the blessings they've lost or does he restore them many times over? Many times over. The next line says, For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. What does that mean? I'm called by your name. Do they call Jeremiah Lord? Talking about his character? You would think that, but that's not what this says in Hebrew at all. It's instead of for I am called by your name, it should say for your name was proclaimed over me. O Lord, the God of hosts. Remember when we were doing the Oneg, I said, remember this from the Aaronic Benediction? Let's turn back to the Aaronic Benediction, to Numbers chapter 6. Starting in verse 22 is the Aaronic Benediction. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you know what the word saying means, what? It's a quote. Speak to Aaron and his son saying, which means, and don't you change a word of it. This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel. So Jeremiah says, I have been blessed. The name of the Lord has been proclaimed over me. I have been made his servant. I've been made his messenger. I'm his prophet delivering his words to you. And I have to take joy in that, that God would take such interest in me, a humble servant, 
that he would allow me to give his message to his people to try and save them. And verse 17 says, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, meaning I didn't participate in all the false prophets and all the people rejoicing in the false prophecies, mocking God, mocking Jeremiah, forgiving God's word. He says, I was not a part of that. I was not a part of that, nor did I rejoice. That is, I did not take pleasure in their unrighteousness. Wait a minute. Does that make you think of a New Testament verse? Maybe Romans chapter 1. Let's turn up to Romans chapter 1. What does Paul say about those who take pleasure and rejoice in the unrighteousness of others? Then you're just as guilty as those who are doing it. That's in Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 28, it goes through verse 32. Looks like one really long sentence. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, what does that mean? They didn't want to think about God. They didn't want to know God. They didn't want to know God's word. God gave them over to a debased mind. What's a debased mind? Is that one focused on good and righteousness? No, quite the opposite. To do those things which are not fitting. Not fitting, that sounds like a glove wouldn't go on the hand, but that's not what it means. What it means to do those things that are not right. And then he starts the list, being filled with all unrighteousness. What's another word for unrighteousness? Lawlessness. Examples, sexual immorality. Boy, I'm glad there's none of that in the world today. Wickedness covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, their whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Knowing that these things lead to death, the people are not rebuking them. They're not teaching them to do better. They're approving of those practices. Hmm. One of the big things in the news this week was the Methodist Church in England came out with a statement that the pastors need to stop using words like husband and wife because it hurts people's feelings. Should the church be encouraging such immoral conduct or should we be speaking against it? But if verse 17 goes on, I sat alone because of your hand. If you have filled me with indignation, that word indignation is za'am, Z-A apostrophe A-M. Just as in Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 66. And it means he is filled with prophecies of destruction. What has he told Jerusalem? How many people are going to remain there? None. Zip. Zero. Nada. That's what you call indignation. 
that God is so angry. He's told Jeremiah, what, three times now? Don't you pray for these people. Because their judgment is sealed. Verse 18 goes on to say, Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? This is Jeremiah. He's speaking harshly to God. Why is my pain perpetual? Not only do I have to deliver these hard prophecies, but the people hate me for it. They want to kill me for it. And my wound incurable, it cannot seem to ever stop because the people will not want. They will not hear. They will not repent. So it says, which refuses to be healed. Is their sin unhealable? No, it doesn't say they can't find a way to be healed. It says it refuses to be healed. They refuse to repent. Why? They're listening to the false prophets, but more than that, do they hate their sin or do they love their sin? They don't want to repent. They enjoy this sin so much. It says, will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? Everybody go, Jeremiah just said, God, are you not to be trusted? Can I not trust your words? Do you think God's going to take him to the woodshed for that? Yep, he sure is. But that's what he's saying to God is I don't know if you can be trusted or not. As waters that fail. That word fail in Hebrew is lo neamanu. Lo neamanu. L O space N E apostrophe E M A N U. Does that sound like it's related to the word for faith and belief? It is because it is. In other words, he's saying, are your words not to be believed? Are they not trustworthy? Are they not going to come to pass? In a way, what he's saying is, I wish you'd just get it over with and get rid of these people. They're bothering me. But you know what? God's timing is perfect. Will God ever bring judgment before he gives an opportunity to repent? Never. So verse 19, here's the Lord's response to Jeremiah's exasperation saying, Lord, are your words not to be trusted? It says, therefore, therefore is because you are nasty to me, says the Lord. If you, you here now is Jeremiah. If you return, meaning what? If you repent of that which you just said, then I'll bring you back. I'll restore you. And you can continue to be my prophet is where we're going. If you take out the precious from the vile, that is if you separate that which is good from that which is wicked, you shall be as my mouth, that is you will again be my prophet and speak to the people on my behalf. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. So Jeremiah has spoken inappropriately to God. 
And Jeremiah must repent if he wants to remain God's prophet. And he wants Jeremiah to know that the people have to come to Jeremiah and say, we want to hear the message of God. We want to know how to repent and how to get back in God's good graces, if you will. Verse 20. And I, meaning if you repent and come back to me and stop this foolish talk, and I'll make you to this people a fortified bronze wall. Think back to the old city of Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day. What kind of a wall did it have? It was a wall of stone, right? And a wall of stone you can eventually break through if you're determined enough and work at it long enough. But how long is it going to take with a battering rammer to break through a bronze fortified wall? The answer is that's not going to happen. So God says, if you return to me, if you repent, if you take back those nasty things, then I will protect you and there will be nothing they can do that will harm you. I will be your defense. And they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. Hmm. How much do you want to bet, Jeremiah, about this point is feeling kind of small, kind of wishing he hadn't shot his mouth off? I'm sure none of us have ever done that, right? Spoken out in anger and said, gee, I wish I hadn't said that. Well, yeah, he's getting his comeuppance here. Verse 21, I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I'll redeem you from the grip of the terrible. But all those promises of deliverance started with what word? If. If you return. And you know what? He does. So let's go to chapter 16, verse 1. The word of the Lord also came to me saying. Where do you see the phrase, the word of the Lord? You see it all over the Bible. What's it mean? Are the words just coming in, blowing on the wind? Or is this referring to John 1.1, the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Is this Messiah bringing the message? I think the answer to that is yes, this is Messiah. So these words come right out of his mouth. Do you see that word also in verse 1? That's not in the Hebrew, so just cross it out. should just read, The word Lord came to me saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. What's that mean? People are so wicked he doesn't need to take wives? Yes, and there's a little more. Don't get distracted, Don't get distracted but there's a little more. He cannot stay in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. As much as Jeremiah would like to settle down, get married, have kids, raise his kids in the beautiful city of Jerusalem, God's letting him know there's not going to be a beautiful city of Jerusalem to raise him in. You're going to have to go. And eventually he does. He has to flee down to Egypt. Because God said there would be how many people left in Jerusalem? 
zero, zero. So it's not that he can't ever marry and have kids. He can't do it here because he's going to have to run. Everyone that's left in Jerusalem is going to die a horrible death when Nebuchadnezzar comes in for the third time. Let's compare this to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 26. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 26 to 28, the Apostle Paul says this. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So Paul's teaching here oftentimes gets misconstrued, but what he's saying is the days that we're living in right now, Paul says, are so hard that we may not any of us survive it. So if you're not married now, you don't want to bring a wife and children into this time period because there is too much danger of death and persecution. So back to Jeremiah 16, verse 2. You shall not take a wife nor shall have sons or daughters in this place. Later, once he's delivered from the great danger that is to come, then he can have a wife and children. Verse 3, God's going to explain why he says in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in this land, they shall die gruesome deaths. That's why he says don't take a wife and kids here. Because if you do, they will die a gruesome death. What does gruesome mean? It doesn't mean they die of old age, right? It means bad things are going to happen. They shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. As there's not going to be anybody left to lament or bury them. But they should be like refuse on the face of the earth. That is, they will be unburied and remain for the beasts of the air and the earth to eat. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine. And their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. We see that kind of symbology twice more in the scripture. Where God talks about a destruction that's so complete, there's not enough people left to do the burying. Where are those two places? First is Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 4. So let's turn over to Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 4. In Ezekiel 39, verse 4, Gog, who is the leader of Magog, and Magog, I believe to be Russia, will come with Turkey and Iran and many Muslim allies that do not share a border with Israel. And they're going to attack Israel on the Golan Heights. And God is going to slaughter them himself. 
and the destruction is going to be so complete that the bodies will lay unburied. Look at Ezekiel 39 verse 4. Talking to Gog and Magog, he says, You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and all the peoples who are with you. I'll give you the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. That is, they will remain unburied. Why do we bury human bodies six feet down? So they won't get dug up by animals to eat them. So, yeah, thinking, of, well, it's, it's going to be gross. Revelation 19 is the next time we see it, where the destruction is so widespread that there's two little people left to bury the dead. Revelation 19, verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Back to chapter 16 of Jeremiah. Sounds kind of horrible. It's supposed to sound horrible. Verse 5. For thus says the Lord. What is the word for indicated at the beginning? This is connect, going to connect to it, going to help explain it, right? For thus says the Lord. Do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies. In your notes, there's three words I want you to put. Three words that appear in this verse. The first is shalom. Shalom, S-H-A-L-O-M. It's a word that means peace, but it means more than that. It's completeness, wholeness, wellness. God's taking his peace from Jerusalem and Judah. The second is where it says loving kindness. That's the word chesed. C-H-E-S-E-D. Chesed. Loving kindness. The way a loving father cares for his children, God says, I will not protect Jerusalem that way anymore. And the third one is the word translated here, mercy. And that's rachamim, R-A-C-H-A-M-I-N, rachamim. Those three words together means God is taking his hands of protection off of Jerusalem. He's going to let Nebuchadnezzar do what Nebuchadnezzar wants to do. Now Nebuchadnezzar has come against Jerusalem and Judah twice before. First time, Daniel went into captivity. Second time, Ezekiel went into captivity. Now, he's left a governor in Jerusalem. And the people have risen up and murdered his governor. So when he comes this time, there is no mercy in Nebuchadnezzar. He is coming with full anger, full fury. And his intention is to destroy every living being left in the city. And you know what? That's what God says is going to happen. God says, I will not step in and protect them. Why? Turn back to Exodus chapter 20. To whom does God show mercy? 
Those who love him and keep his commandments. Are the children of Israel at the time of this prophecy keeping God's commandments? Loving him with their whole heart? Absolutely not. They're thumbing their nose at him. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity, that's a bone, that's lawlessness. Of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but. Showing mercy to thousands, that's thousands of generations to those who love me. And keep my commandments. Hasn't been long since we looked all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And did that ever change? The answer is no. So when the people choose to worship the pagan idols and turn their back on God. They should know that God will withdraw his mercy. And that's exactly what's about to happen. Given all that I've said tonight, would you think that God will not give them another opportunity to repent? But he will. He will. That's what gives me hope for our world today. Because our nation, boy. While some people may call it a Christian nation, it doesn't act like it. So verse 5 says, God will take away his peace, meaning his protection, his mercies, his loving kindnesses. He will take away the blessings, and all they're going to be left with is the curses. And they should have known that from Deuteronomy chapter what? 28. It's not like God didn't tell him this how long ago? In the days of Moses, before they ever entered the land so look at verse 6. In case they're wondering, oh, what did we do? Here's where God's going to start laying out the charges. Because you know what? You will never repent of your sins until you recognize that you're sinning. So in verse 6, here are some prohibited pagan customs that the children of Israel are reveling in. Verse 6 says, both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves. What does he mean, cut themselves? Like the prophets of Baal, the people would cut themselves to shed their own blood in mourning for the loss of a loved one. Nor make themselves bald for them. That's the custom of cutting away all the hair here on the crown of the head in mourning. Um, makes me think, have you ever seen the movie um, Robin Hood, Friar Tuck? How he's got all the hair. Yeah, you guys know that kind of haircut. God says don't do that. Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14. God's taking them back, pointing them back to things they should be studying all the time in the synagogue. Of course, they don't have synagogues yet, but one day they will. Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 to 2. That's why the synagogue system started, if you don't know. 
When they came back from the Babylonian captivity, they said, we went into captivity because we didn't keep God's commandments because we didn't know what they were. So they set up the synagogue system to study every week. So they said, we'll never do this again. Did they do it again? They did it again. Deuteronomy 14 verses 1 and 2 says, You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples which are on the face of the earth. And the point that God's making in Jeremiah 16 is, I told you not to do that, and you ignore me and do it anyway, so I'm going to take away your ability to do it. I'm going to take away your ability to flaunt my word. Go to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. We read in the scriptures here where God takes away the ability to keep the commandments as a punishment. You're exactly right. It's not like he says, oh, you couldn't do it, so we'll take him away to make the burden easier. It's a punishment from God when he takes away their ability to keep it. You're right. Leviticus 19, verse 28. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead. Is that kind of clear? Nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. Does this mean no tattoos? Yeah, it means no tattoos. Up to Jeremiah chapter 16. Of course, I can just hear the masses now saying, it's my body. I'll do what I want. But you know what? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. And God said, don't do it. So in verse 6, they shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them, because there won't be anybody left to do it. They will be forced to stop the pagan customs because there won't be anybody there to carry them out. Verses 7 and 8 go together as a unit. It says, Nor shall men break bread in mourning for them to comfort them for the dead. Is That's still a custom, right? When somebody dies to go to the house and bring them food. That's a good thing. So he's not saying that's a pagan forbidden custom, just there's not going to be any there to do it. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. Death will be too common, too widespread. And you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. Just simply too much death and destruction. Verse 9, for thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? It's got end times elements. What is Lord of hosts in Hebrew? Adonai Zavaot. That word hosts, Zavaot, is another word for armies. So it refers to the Lord leading armies in judgment, like in Revelation 19.11. For thus says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts returns in Revelation 19.11. Who is it? It's our Messiah. 
But the Lord of hosts, it says here, is the God of Israel. Is Messiah the God of Israel? Yeah, whether they realize it or not. Keep a finger here and turn up to the book of Hebrews. Does God call Messiah God? Yes, he does. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But to the Son, he says. Notice how Son is capitalized. We're talking about Messiah. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So what does he call Messiah? God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. That's talking about Messiah. Messiah loves what? Righteousness. And hates what? Lawlessness. So why would those who claim to be children of God, who love Messiah and look forward to being the bride of Messiah, do what he hates? False prophets teach him that. That's not good. Okay. Back to Jeremiah 16, verse 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, does behold mean something irrelevant's coming? No, it's very important. Behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days. Meaning what? This is not for a future generation. This is now. The voice of mirth. What's mirth? Joy, gladness, happiness, rejoicing. Yeah. And the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. That's a common way in the scripture to refer to life being good in a nation. The celebrations at weddings, the bridegroom and the bride, how we just celebrate their union and, and their coming together as a couple. God says, I'm taking that away. Let's compare to this, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 34. Some will say, we already studied that. Yeah, but it was more than yesterday, so I forgot. Jeremiah 7, 34. Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. For the land shall be desolate. So he added that back in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 34, and didn't repeat it here because he said you can read. For the land shall be desolate, that is, there's nobody left to marry. There's nobody left to rejoice. Let's look also at Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 10, because I can't leave you with such a sorrowful heart. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 10. Jeremiah 25, verse 10. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. You say, Wayne, you said you weren't going to make it any worse. Ah, oh, but read the next verse, verse 11. This whole land shall be a desolation and astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then... It will come to pass when 70 years are completed 
that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. Where's the city of Babylon today? It's a perpetual desolation. Saddam Hussein might have stayed in power a lot longer except what? He started to rebuild Babylon, which God said will be a perpetual desolation. That's when he fell. Hmm. So why does this take away a little bit of the pain? Because we know that there's a time limit to God taking away his peace and his mercy and his long-suffering and the mirth and the joy and the rejoicing of the bridegroom and the bride. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 10 to 11. Jeremiah 33, verses 10 to 11. Thus says the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place. What's this place? Jerusalem, of which you say it is desolate without man and without beast. In the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant, without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. The voice of those who will say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. For his mercy endures forever. I say in Hebrew, for his mercy endures forever. Ki leolam chasdo. You bet. So we have God's promise, his word on it. That this destruction, this lack of protection is temporary. And what would end it? Repentance. Turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. That's exactly how it ends. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, or some people say Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, whichever way you say it, of uh, the lineage of the Medes. Who are the Medes? Ones that defeated Babylon in Daniel chapter 5. Today we call them Persia or Iran. Who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. I, Daniel, understood by the books. What books? The Torah. The number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Did Jeremiah say 70 years? We just read it. He said 70 years. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. What do they indicate? Repentance and mourning. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. See, Daniel read Exodus chapter 20. He knew why God took away his hand of protection. 
And he knows what brings it back is repentance. So verse 5 says, We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets. What did the prophets always preach? Repent. Who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. Back to Jeremiah. Chapter 16. Verse 10. And it shall be when you show, but it's not show, it's when you tell. When you tell. This people, all these words, and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? That's the word avon. It means lawlessness. And it appears 200 and how many times? 230 times in the Bible. Oh, that's a lot. We have been very bad over the years. Or what's our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Can you believe the audacity when God's prophet is saying, you have sinned against the Lord our God, them saying, yeah, what we do? What have they done if you read Ezekiel chapter 8 to 10? They've cut crashes in the walls of the temple to put up pagan idols in the tents, in the, in the courtyards of God's temple. They put up trees by the altar, which God said, don't ever, ever do that. They're in God's courtyard with their backs to him, bowing to the rising sun, weeping for Tammuz. They're, break, they're making hot cross buns for the queen of heaven. And it tells us the fathers, the mothers, and the children are all involved in the making of them. And yet they have the audacity to say, what did we do? Or what's our iniquity? What is our sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? Why would they be asking such things? Because the false prophets are telling them what? You can, you can please God by doing these things right here. You can please God by, well, bring him a lamb now and then, and he'll be satisfied, right? After all, you're the descendants of Abraham. What did Messiah say? Don't tell me you're the children of Abraham. Meaning what? That's not a way of salvation. But the teaching amongst the Jewish people is that, hey, if we are circumcised, we're saved, we're going to heaven doesn't matter what we do. And if they, the Gentiles, are uncircumcised, they're going to hell and there's nothing they can do about it. Salvation is by circumcision. Because circumcision was given to Abraham, our father. What does the Bible have to say about that? Are we saved by circumcision? The book of Galatians is about that very issue. Paul taught the Galatians his salvations by faith. And then others came in after Paul and said, no, no, Paul's wrong. You've got to be circumcised to be saved. That's how you enter the covenant with God. That's how you get saved. And if you turn to Acts chapter 15, Acts 15 follows the book of Galatians. 
And it's where Paul brings the issue down to the Jerusalem council and says, look, people are coming from Jerusalem and telling my people that circumcision is the way of salvation. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. <clears throat> people that use Acts chapter 15 to say, once you're saved, you don't need to keep God's commandments, have skipped the beginning of the chapter, and they go straight to verse 20. And you can't do that. You've got to know what the issue is. When you're looking for land, what are the three most important things you look for? Location, location, location. When you're interpreting the Bible, you must look at context, context, context. Look at Acts 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea, that is, down to Galatia from Judea. You and I might say up to, since it's going north, but in the eyes of the Jewish people, whenever you're going away from Jerusalem, you're going down. Whenever you're going up to Jerusalem, you're going up because that's where God's temple was. So certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. The brethren, those that Paul led to salvation by faith. Quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was and remains, for the most part today, Jewish theology. Go ahead, Margo. Oh, she may not have meant to turn on her mic. So whenever Messiah says to the group, and don't tell me you have Abraham as your father, that's what he's saying. Don't tell me that salvation is by circumcision. Where else does the New Testament address whether circumcision is necessary for salvation? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. That's exactly what I was thinking. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Because if you keep the commandments of God, you do it out of faith and out of love, right? Because nobody keeps God's commandments who hates God. It doesn't work that way. I'll get off my soapbox now. Back to Jeremiah 16, verse 10. Why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what's our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22. Jeremiah 2, verse 22. For though you wash yourself with a lie and use much soap, Yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. Again, what's iniquity? Lawlessness. God says they have forsaken me. That's in verse 19 of chapter 2. That you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 13.
God's calling out to the people through the prophet. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. By alien deities, does he mean Martians and little flying salt? No, he's talking about pagan idols. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. To the Lord, if you will not keep his commandments, you have what? You have forsaken him. You have forgotten him. Jeremiah chapter 5. Why am I going over these particular verses? Because they've already been told this over and over. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 25. Your iniquities, your lawlessness have turned these things these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. So it's not that they haven't been told, it's that they didn't want to hear it. Hmm. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Brother Wayne. Yes, ma'am. Could the same be said to those who are in the church who don't want to hear the words of the Old Testament and say, that's all old. And, and they say, well, you know, we have the New Testament. Yep. -er. Okay, thank you. Yep. Yeah, we're getting there. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Matthew 23, 15 is important to me because I often get asked, but people in the church today who've been misled by bad teaching, God won't hold that against them, right? But what does it say here? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why are they hypocrites? He told us in Matthew chapter 15. What do they teach as doctrine? The commandments of men. They've replaced God's commandments like well, never mind, like what? With man-made rules and regulations. For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. A proselyte is a Gentile convert to Judaism. And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So does God say, I don't hold it against the convert because you taught him wrong? You made him twice as bad. Twice as much as son of hell means come judgment day, they're going to regret their decisions. Staying in Matthew 23, go to, verse chap to chapter 23, verse 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, also outwardly, you appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and what? Lawlessness. If we turn our backs on God's commandments, what excuse is good enough? How do you stand before a mirror and practice what you're going to say to Messiah on Judgment Day? 
I didn't obey the commandments because. In practice, do you come up with something you think he will accept and say, well, then that's okay. I haven't thought of anything yet. Hmm. Second Peter, chapter 2. I'm not here to judge anybody. I hope everybody will repent, get saved, and spend an eternity with the Lord our God. I would just be a little surprised. St. Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people. He's talking about like in Jeremiah's day. There's Jeremiah, a true prophet, and then there's hundreds of false prophets. Even as there will be false teachers among you. So he's telling the believers that just as Israel had false prophets that led them astray, led them away from God's commandments, they will have false teachers that lead them into lawlessness. Does that sound like Matthew chapter 7? It says, Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction? And many will follow their destructive ways. Here's the question of those who listen to the false teachers. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. What way of truth? Taurus, Psalm 119, verse 142. By covetousness, what do they want? Money. Noses and dollars. They will exploit you with deceptive words. What are deceptive words? They sound good, but they lead you away from God. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell. It's not actually hell, is it? What is it actually? Tartarus. Start looking at the Greek, Tartarus, which would be Sheol if we were looking at the Hebrew. And deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. I only point that out because some people think hell refers to the lake of fire that people eventually get thrown into after the great white throne judgment. And that's not what this means. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Messiah referred back to the days of Noah. And Peter refers back to the days of Noah. Not just to say the world was wicked back then, but how many were saved? Eight. Because of a preacher of righteousness, someone who led them correctly. In the path of righteousness. And what's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. And the other reference Messiah made other than to Noah was to Lot, right? In Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 6, Peter refers to that. In turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example 
to those who afterward would live ungodly. What were we supposed to learn from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? That living an ungodly life is a bad thing, right? Put that on your list of bad things. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. When I read these words, what they say to me is that come the rapture and the resurrection, those that are going to be taken are those that are practicing righteousness, not those that are practicing lawlessness. Not going to be gazillions of people. I think most people say it'll only be two or three billion. Well, we'll see. I hope that's true, but I kind of doubt it. Back to Jeremiah 16. Verse 11. Then you, you being Jeremiah, shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me. This word forsaken is azav. And what does it literally mean? You have left me. They have left me. That's a choice. They didn't just slip down a slippery slope, down a muddy hillside. They decided to leave. Fathers have forsaken me says the Lord. They've walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. I don't think that God will punish us for what we could not possibly do. I think the punishment comes when we made a choice to do what was wrong. Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That word leave is the same verb. Ignoring the fact that we're down here in the south and we've heard rumors of shotgun weddings. For the most part, when a man takes a bride, he chooses to leave home and live with his bride, correct? It is a choice one makes because it is preferable in their eyes to live with the wife than with mama and papa. That's the same usage that we see up here in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 11. They said, we can either serve the Lord God or we can serve the idols. And we choose the idols. They left because they made a choice. Let's go to Deuteronomy 28. We are very familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 28, I'm sure. But I want to look at verse 20 in particular. 
Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 20. In verse 11, God said, you have forsaken me. Do you see the word forsaken in verse 20? It says, the Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. Did the people of Jeremiah's day in Jerusalem hear these words? By hear I mean, did they take them to heart? Did they obey them? They did not. They don't believe that God will do what he says he will do. That's what Jeremiah was referring to up in verse 18 of chapter 15. Will your words be like an unreliable stream? Will they not come to pass? And what God is saying, tell him, yes, my words will come to pass. So look also at Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31, verses 16 to 17. You see the word forsake in these verses, but it's a little different. Deuteronomy 31, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, meaning what? You're going to die. And this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners. They're going to make idols and participate in idolatry of the land, where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me. A choice to turn away from me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day and I will forsake them. So they turn their back on me, God says, I will turn my back on them. Meaning what? When they cry out, help us, help us, he won't hear it. That's what it means. They forsook me, so I will forsake them. I'll hide my face from them, meaning I will not hear their prayers, and they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so they will say in that day, ooh, in what day? Day of the Lord. So this is a dual fulfillment prophecy. Have not these evils come upon us because God is not among us? So that's the promise that they will eventually realize that we've suffered a lot through the last centuries. But it's because God's not among us. And why is God not among us? Because we have forsaken him. We have sinned. And that's where Hosea chapter 5 and 6 come in. Where they decide we best repent and turn back to God. Another word. So let's go back to Jeremiah 16, verse 11. And another word, in addition to forsaken, I want you to see, is the word served. See that they've walked after other gods and served them. 
That word in Hebrew is avad. Avad. And what does avad mean? Means to work. Yeah. We have done what they told us to do rather than what God told us to do. And of course, the idols don't tell them anything. Who tells them? The false prophets who serve the pagan idols. So they obey someone other than God. Close your eyes and think back to the Garden of Eden. God said, don't eat from the tree. And what did Satan say? Did God really say, look how good those are for food. You ought to eat those. And did they listen to God or Satan? They listened to Satan. But did it matter that it was Satan that they listened to? I don't think so. Anytime you turn your back on the word of God and listen to someone else instead, you have erred greatly. Give me a verse like, oh, I, let's say Romans 6.16. So let's go look at Romans 6.16. I think that's precisely what Paul's trying to tell us. Is you can't turn away from God's word and embrace somebody else. Doesn't matter if it's the Pope. Doesn't matter if it's the preacher. Doesn't matter if it's the head of your denomination. Verse 16 says, Do you not know that to me you present yourselves slaves to, to obey? That word slave comes from that same Hebrew word avad. The Hebrew word for slave is evid. You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether a sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. If we turn our back on the commandments of God and follow man-made commandments, that's Matthew 15 and Mark 7. God says, your worship of me is in vain. If your doctrine is based upon the commandments of whom? Of men. So look at Isaiah chapter 66, verse 14. Isaiah 66, verse 14. Isaiah 66 is about the return of the Lord. And as I'm fond of saying, God tends to break things down into two categories, right? Life and death, good and evil, etc., in Isaiah 66, 14, it says, When you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, that's his evadim, and his indignation to his enemies. If you're not God's servant, then you are his enemy. Is that what this says? Do you see a third category? There's not. Then why doesn't the New Testament tell us that every word that God spoke is important? Let's look at Matthew 4.4. 4. The words are red. I like red words. I trust red words in my Bible. 
When Satan says, do what I tell you to do, Messiah said, uh-uh. Matthew 4.4, 4. but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what words did God speak that Messiah says, oh, forget those, they're Old Testament. None of them. Hmm. Let's go back to Isaiah. I'm sorry, to Jeremiah 16 and finish the verse. I know I never got all the way through it. You shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me. That is, they made a deliberate choice to leave me. Says the Lord, they've walked after other gods and have served them, obeyed their teachings, not mine, and worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. What do we call that law? The Torah. If we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11... We'll see what God has to say if we forget his commandments. In Deuteronomy 8 is the very same chapter Messiah was just quoting from in Matthew 4.4. 4. Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 11 is, is in the same chapter the Messiah quoted from. Messiah quoted from verse 3. But verse 11 says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Meaning, if you turn away from God's commandments, you have forgotten the Lord your God. If you look back earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's the end of verse 3 that Messiah quotes in Matthew 4. Verse 4, it says, But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. But look at verse 6. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. The therefore is the explanation. These are what the words that Messiah quoted from mean. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Means, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. And then of course people will say, yeah Wayne, but Paul said quit keeping those commandments. No, no, no. Let's go up to 2 Timothy 3. To words that I have no doubt what you have put on several t-shirts by now. 2 Timothy chapter 3. How many copies of the New Testament were there when Paul wrote this? None. Zero. None. So when he uses the term in verse 15, the Holy Scriptures, what does he mean? 
He means the Tanakh, or what you and I would call the Old Testament. But referring to the scriptures in verse 16, he says, All scripture, or every scripture, is God-breathed. It came out of the mouth of God. Which takes us right back to Matthew 4.4. And it's profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's what Torah means, is instruction. Instruction in righteousness is what the Torah is. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Yes, Edmund. Um, that thing about um, the the date of Timothy is that even earlier than the Gospels? Then. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but the Gospels weren't put together into a New Testament. Until the second century. Oh, no, that was, putting them together came a lot later. Yeah. So I was just wondering, because I was thinking, uh, I, I like that um, that approach. And I was just thinking, I know I came across something that uh, even suggests that um, among the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a, there's a, a fragment of um, scripture, which there are all sorts of uh, debates about what it's referring to it you know it's rather broken up and um uh one of the the most startling suggestions and it fits it so much better than any of the other is that it's uh can't remember whether it's a fragment from first or second timothy that's the one it fits to a remarkable degree which would put um you know timothy um earlier um, than the Gospels, certainly. Yep. But I, I wondered if that's, that's where that's coming from. It is certainly possible. But if we look at verse 15, it says that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. So certainly when Timothy was a child, the Gospels had not yet been written. Hmm. Marcion was the first to compile anything called a New Testament, and that was in the second century. Okay. Thanks. Yep. Hmm. My next note just says, go to Ephesians 2. Read the whole book. We probably don't want to do all of Ephesians 2, but let's go look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is very important because it says, well, okay, maybe Paul was talking to Timothy about what we would call the Old Testament, but just for the Jewish people he might be teaching. Are the Gentile believers supposed to follow God's commandments too? Well, we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 already. What's chapter 7, right? Verse 19? Yeah. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. But in Ephesians 2, we're told more. The Gentile believers are brought into the covenants that God has made with Israel. Not to replace Israel, but to be grafted in like a wild olive tree being grafted into a cultivated tree. 
So verse 11, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time, what time? Before you got saved, you were without Messiah. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were not part of the commonwealth of Israel. You were a goy. A goy is a stranger, an alien, a Gentile from another nation. And strangers from the covenants of promise. Having no hope without God in the world. Not that we were strangers from all the covenants. Remember the Noahide covenant? That's even with the animals in the land itself. But the covenants of promise, the promise of salvation by faith, the promise of the land, all those promises. We were aliens and strangers from those, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. Made both what? Jewish believer and Gentile believer. Once you become a believer, it doesn't matter if you were born Jew or Gentile. And it's broken down the middle wall of separation. That was Acts chapter 10. What if God had not given Peter the vision in Acts chapter 10? When those Gentiles knocked on the door and said, come to the home of Cornelius, what would Peter have said? Go away, Go away. can't do it. What did God do? He broke down that middle wall of separation and kept the Jewish people and the Gentile people apart. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, enmity is hatred that separates people. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Would you believe the NIV leaves out contained in ordinances and just makes it say the law of commandments? They're trying to make it say something it didn't because that word ordinances is the Greek word dogma, D-O-G-M-A, dogma. It never refers to God's commandments, only to man-made rules and regulations. So creating himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, not the law, the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him we both, that is Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The saints, the Hagios, Revelation 14, 12, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. But didn't Paul tell the Gentiles that when you get saved, you just keep walking as a Gentile did, as you always did before? Now turn the page to Ephesians 4.17. He said, stop that. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Well, if you don't walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, how are you supposed to walk? As a new man, as the believing Jews walk, keeping the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God out of love and faith. That's why it says in verse 22 that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts 
and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. True righteousness. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. Put away the lawlessness. Walk in righteousness and holiness. And without holiness, no one will see God. Wow. And the rest of it goes, put away this, put away that, stop doing this, stop doing that. Yep. Go back to Jeremiah 17. It means repent. But isn't repentance a way to earn your salvation? The answer is no. It's the first step back to God. What was the first word out of John the Baptist's mouth? Repent. Out of Messiah's mouth? Repent. Out of Peter's mouth? Repent. Well, in answer to their question anyway. He said a lot before that. Verse 12. Verse 12 of Jeremiah. Back to Jeremiah. And you have done worse than your fathers. Uh-oh. He's talking about Manasseh and those guys. And you're worse than that? Oh my goodness. For behold, which means shut up and listen. This is really important. Each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. That word listens is the Hebrew word shmoa. S-H-M-O-A. Shmoa. It's ongoing action. Which means they continue to walk as they want to walk and couldn't care less what God told them to do. It's my body, I'll do what I want. No, you're bought with a price. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 12, verse 8. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8. Have you noticed that God does not stutter? He tends to say exactly what he means. Deuteronomy 12, 8, he says, You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. If we're not supposed to do what's right in our own eyes, we're supposed to do what's right in what? In God's eyes. What did God tell us? Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. What's sad is people make up a bunch of ways that they think will please God. Instead of doing what God said, they make up ways that they think ought to please God, right? And that points you right to Matthew chapter 7. It reminds me of a comment in my Tanakh on Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, where God says, whatever I command you, don't turn to the right or to the left, don't add to it, don't take away from it. And the sages of old said, 
When you add to the word of God what you think will please him, it may not. The scripture does say his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15 gives us a point that I just could not disagree with. It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. So to do it God's way is wise, but every fool believes that what he's doing is right. How many people out there do you suppose in the world honestly believe that their sin would lead them to an eternity in the lake of fire? They don't really believe that. Or they would tremble in their boots. You have to completely ignore the scripture that, you know, that talks about fire burns for eternity. You have to completely ignore the scripture that says the fire burns for eternity. Give me just one. Isaiah 66, right? There's Revelation and there's Revelation 20 also. also. Yeah. Let's look also to go ahead, Proverbs 21. It's a lack of faith. And that's what Hebrews chapter 3 says, right? The children of Israel in the wilderness disobeyed because they really had no faith. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. Or 2. Let's see. It's verse 2. There's a meme going around Facebook right now that says essentially. That if every person alive knew what the people who have already died know, they change their ways. Proverbs 21.2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. So chapter 15 was about the fool. Proverbs 21 is every person thinks that what they're doing is right and okay. Does that make it right or okay? It does not. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 13. Therefore, what, therefore what? Because no one listens to the commandments of God. Therefore I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know. Neither you nor your fathers, neither you shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. Where did God promise that? Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36. That's exactly what he said would happen. So God is going to do exactly what God said he would do. And the false prophets are saying, no, he won't. No, he won't. God wouldn't do that. Have you heard any preachers say that God would never send anyone to hell because he's too loving a God? God will do exactly what he says he's going to do. When they make a statement like that, what they're really saying is that he is not God. Correct. So back to Jeremiah 16, verses 14 and 15. They go together. Therefore... 
Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers. These are words of promise. That God's regathering of the children of Israel back to the land will be a greater miraculous thing than delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 to 8. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 to 8. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. That's the prophets, priests, and kings who lead the people astray. Therefore says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. How do you want to be in their shoes come judgment day? Uh-uh. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them. And bring them back to their folds. And they should be fruitful increase. This means we should be seeing the children of Israel coming back to the land of Israel in our lifetimes. Are we? Yes, we are. Now I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. That's the fulfillment in the kingdom with Messiah ruling and reigning from the Temple Mount. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Notice days are plural. Thou art raised to David a branch of righteousness. That's Messiah Yeshua. That's Isaiah chapter 7 and 9. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. That's Messiah. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. That is the two kingdoms being reunited as they are when Messiah returns for the kingdom. Now this is the name of which he will be called, Adonai Zedekinu, the Lord our righteousness. Therefore behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country, from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. So when does Jeremiah chapter 16 verses 14 and 15 get ultimately fulfilled in the kingdom when Messiah returns in the day of the Lord? Let's also look at Isaiah chapter 11. Talking about this final regathering of Israel into the kingdom when Messiah returns. Isaiah chapter 11 verses 10 to 12. And in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. There should be a root of Jesse. That means one who comes before Jesse. That's Messiah from chapter 11, verse 1. Who shall stand as a banner to the people. That banner is a Nazi. It's a rallying point. For the Gentiles shall seek him. And his resting place shall be glorious. Ooh, that's Hebrews 4, 9. 
That's the Sabbatismas, the Sabbath day. That's yet to come. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamat and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's the ultimate and final regathering as Messiah returns to rule and reign and people are brought into the kingdom. Back to Jeremiah chapter 16. Verse 16. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord. Look at that word, fishermen. And they shall fish them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain, every hill, and out of the holes of the rocks. Does anything in the New Testament talk about fishermen? Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Make a fisher of men. Why do you suppose Messiah used those words? Did he know what Jeremiah wrote? He prompted Jeremiah to write the words. So yes, he knew. Matthew 4, verse 13. Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, down to verse 22. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. People who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Yeshua began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Yeshua, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two older brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. They're going to be what? Fishers of men. Let's look also at Matthew chapter 28, verse 15. And then we'll stop for the day. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. This is their fishing expedition, to go be fishers of men. The word nations refers to the Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to do all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Wouldn't you like to be one of those fishermen? You are.
So when we come back next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 17.